bitch. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, so, I got a lot today, a lot of hot topics, as the kids might say. The kids don't say that. I just made that up. Uh, so, CNN tripled down on their feud with Joe Rogan. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Candace Owens is in the news. Now, what's interesting is that uh, she's in the news, I think, for the wrong reason. Um, people are saying that she argued we should invade Australia. <laughs> That's actually not true because she said that part in jest. <clears throat> she uh, doesn't want to invade Australia. But there's another part of the same segment that's being ignored, which is actually the story, in my opinion, which is she made a comparison between Australia and Nazi Germany. So we're going to talk about that. Um, John Stewart came out in defense of Dave Chappelle over his recent special. Joe Biden uh, casually said that the U.S. would go to war with China to protect Taiwan. Uh, that's not good. Then we have... Uh, Democratic representative Richie Torres, who uh, seems to think that Joe Biden is the most progressive president in U.S. history. Not only is that not true, there's an argument that a modern era Republican is actually more progressive than Joe Biden. And I'm going to make that case to you today. So it should be an interesting one. Um, I have some Ben Shapiro in the show. Uh, There's a story that I'm particularly interested in about how There was a deadly bacteria that was found in um, just a a casual product at Walmart, like, you know, something that you might pick up on a random Thursday, you know. So there's a lot to say about that. It's actually terrifying if you think about it. If the multiple levels of systemic failure that got us to the point where you could just buy a random room spray and die from a deadly tropical disease. So we're going to talk about that. Um, And, oh, there's fun in the show, too. There's fun for days, including uh, our favorite televangelist, Rick Wiles, has a phenomenal conspiracy theory on uh, the vaccines that I can't wait to share with you. The guy's a total lunatic. So anyway, without further further ado, yeah, that's a weird word. Let's get into it, and we're going to do that with Joe Rogan. So you guys know by now that uh, CNN and Joe Rogan have been going at it. Joe Rogan had Sanjay Gupta on his podcast and basically called out, CNN to Sanjay Gupta's face and said, hey, man, they were lying about me when they said I was taking horse dewormer. Uh, I was taking the human version of ivermectin, obviously not the veterinary version. Now, uh, to be fair, there's really no good evidence to suggest that ivermectin works against COVID. At best, it's inconclusive. At worst, it just doesn't work. It's sort of in a hydroxychloroquine type situation. Um, It's, for whatever reason, become a big part of like the culture war to talk about certain medicines as if, like, it's a right or left position. But um, CNN overreached in their attack of, of Joe Rogan and said, you know, he's taking horse dewormer, and that got under his skin massively. And uh, so Sanjay Gupta and him went back and forth on that. Sanjay basically admitted, like, yeah, CNN shouldn't have said that. Um, well, since then, it's been, it's been getting more and more embarrassing for CNN because uh, Sanjay Gupta went on Don Lemon's show where Don Lemon uh, tried to make a – silly defense of CNN and basically say, like, well, it's not really a lie because it is used for veterinary reasons, too. And, I mean, that's just such a Weasley argument because the fact of the matter is, guys, probably most medications are used uh, both in humans and animals. If you've ever taken your dog for a surgery, they have, like, you know, 
doggy benzos and doggy painkillers that are very similar uh, to the stuff they use on humans. Now, nobody says if you could get a prescription for Xanax, it's like, you know, uh, cat tranquilizer being used by whatever person. It, it just, it's such a reach, and it's so obvious they don't like Joe Rogan, so they wanted to frame the story in as negative a possible light. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that there weren't some people taking the veterinary version of ivermectin. There were, and there was an uptick in, you know, calls to poison control centers in Utah, for one, among other places. And so is it an issue that some people were using the vet version of ivermectin and they shouldn't be? Well, yes, but that wasn't Joe Rogan. And so I think it's unfair to just lump him in just because they want to own him and they want to attack him. Well, guess what? After the embarrassing segment where Don Lemon tried to defend CNN's actions, um, now CNN released another statement to the Washington Post, and they basically tripled down. So take a look at this. The heart of this debate, this is a, from CNN's PR department, the heart of this debate has been purposely confused and ultimately lost. By the way, that's true, but the ones who have been confusing it is CNN. It's never been about livestock versus human dosage of ivermectin. The issue is that a powerful voice in the media, who by example and through his platform, so doubt in the proven and approved science of vaccines while promoting the use of an unproven treatment for COVID-19, a drug developed to ward off parasites in farm animals. The only thing CNN did wrong here was bruise the ego of a popular podcaster who published dangerous conspiracy theories and risked the lives of millions of people in doing so. So in other words, uh, they're not saying the obvious thing, which is they effectively waged a war on nuance. CNN likes to pride themselves in this idea of like, facts first. Remember when they ran that smug ass commercial that was like, this is an apple. This is not an orange. This is not a banana. This is an apple. Because we believe in facts here at CNN. <laughs> Remember when they ran that commercial? I'm obviously paraphrasing it. I don't know if that was exactly uh, the way it was phrased. But when you look at a commercial like that, you go, okay, if I take them at face value, which you shouldn't, but if I take them at face value, what they're saying is, we're going to give you all the ins and outs. We're going to give you all the details. We're not going to hide the nuance. We're going to put everything up, you know, front and center and let you know that, this is how the world is, and then you react accordingly. But in the case of this Rogan fiasco, they didn't do that. It's very misleading, and it's very disingenuous to discuss this topic the way they're discussing it. And the sad thing is, it's not like there weren't legitimate criticisms of Joe Rogan. I know there are legitimate criticisms of Joe Rogan. I made them. So when he gave his uh, cocktail of medications that he said he took because he wanted to throw the kitchen sink at COVID when he learned he had it, uh, yeah, most of them have a lot of science backing them. Um, and, for example, he took the, uh, the Regeneron treatment, the monoclonal antibodies. That's one of the treatments that helped Trump rebound when Trump wasn't doing well. Um, but one of the things I said is I wouldn't have had ivermectin in the rotation in the same way I wouldn't have had hydroxychloroquine in the rotation. The other area where you can disagree with Joe is that Joe, uh, you know, got a lot of blowback, I think rightfully so, when he argued, well, you know, young, healthy people don't need to take the vaccine. And he misunderstood the fact that we're not saying they need to take the vaccine to protect themselves. Because, yes, it's true that if you're younger, you're overwhelmingly likely to survive this and be okay. It's about herd immunity. So, in other words, you want to make sure that you get the vaccine so that you don't pass it to grandma or grandpa or mom or dad who might have a comorbidity or three comorbidities or they might be obese or whatever it might be. And so it's important to reach herd immunity. It's important for them to get the vaccine for that reason. He's also worried about, you know, the studies that show there's some myocarditis in young people who get the vaccine. But the, the part of that that he's missing is that there's also myocarditis associated with COVID. In fact, more so if you get COVID than the myocarditis associated with the vaccine. 
So that's not a good objection to, you know, whatever, 12 and up getting the vaccine. I think now they may have lowered it to even five and up, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or they're about to do that. So there were areas to disagree with Joe Rogan. You easily could have made the point that, hey, uh, Joe Rogan is taking the human version of ivermectin, uh, but at best it's inconclusive whether or not that works. At worst, it just doesn't work. Uh, but, hey, here are the other drugs in his rotation. There's evidence that these do work. And, but having said all that, maybe he should tread carefully because some people are taking the veterinary version of ivermectin and he doesn't want to inadvertently, uh, you know, push some people in that direction, even though that's not his intention. Um, and, again, you could have criticized the vaccine statement that I just criticized. But instead of going through all the ins and outs of the commentary, what they did is they took out, you know, uh, a mallet and a blowtorch and a crowbar, and they swung it at his face. And when you go at the number one podcaster on the planet with the biggest audience, uh, where he's developed so much trust with a colossal number of people, everybody's going to look at you like, why are you lying? Why are you misleading people? Why are you not giving all the information? Why are you uh, actively hostile to the complexity of the conversation at hand? And it, now, this is what's happening as a result of it. Now, they triple down, and, you know, the entire time, it, they're not really holding their own in this discussion, in this debate. So guess what? Guess what? Now, um, the Washington Post, which is an establishment rag, just like the New York Times is, um, they've now released two pieces where they say, hey, CNN, chill the fuck out. You're not right about this, and you're actively being hostile. So I'll just give you uh, one of the titles here. This is uh, one, an opinion piece in the Washington Post. The media slant on Joe Rogan and COVID has been wrong. Journalists must do better. That's just one piece. There was another one by Eric Wemple, and he, in, in a more nuanced way, he effectively argued the same thing, that mm, Joe Rogan's kind of right in this, and CNN is massively overreaching. And so here we are. Now we're at a place where even when they get caught red-handed, being misleading on a topic, they dig their hole deeper. They double down. They triple down. They'll probably quadruple down. And you're, you're hurting nobody but yourself, guys, CNN. Now, listen, if you watch this show, you've lost trust in mainstream media a long time ago. Uh, you know, you know that they basically pushed us into every single war. Um, they've lied about virtually everything under the sun. They act like stenographers to the intelligence agencies and uh, the Pentagon, and they give their twisted version of events you know, another example, by the way, is the Wall Street Journal just ran an op-ed basically saying, Iran's trying to get a nuke, and if they get it, they'll use it on us. Okay, well, this is just like Saddam Hussein, you know, Iraq weapons of mass destruction all over again. So you, you shouldn't trust the media in the first place. But now they're at the place where eventually, you know, they had to admit, like, okay, we were wrong about Iraq. Now they're at the place where they keep getting caught red-handed, and uh, CNN kept doubling down. And now, so even other shitty rags are coming out and saying, relax a little bit, relax a little bit. And I, I don't know why Washington Post and some of the people there are choosing to be honest about this now, but I think part of it might just be a Hail Mary in the sense that these are people who understand that the trust in media is at a record low right now, and that with stuff like this, it's going to get lower and lower and lower and lower. And they need to do something to try to stop the bleeding. I mean, they're on the ground and they're bleeding out. And there's a, just a total collapse in trust in our institutions. And that's earned. It's earned. And I don't want that to be the case. I wish the media did a good job, but they don't. 
And I think a lot of it really does stem from the fact that um, a lot of the traditional elite media types have sort of typecast Joe Rogan as Trump supporter, right winger. And so they feel like they get a pass to just lie about him. And, but they also just misread Joe Rogan massively. Joe Rogan, when you actually go through the policy positions with him, and I know because obviously I've been on his uh, show a number of times, he'll tell you. And, and he repeats, even in the podcast with Sanjay Gupta, he went down the list and repeated it. This is a guy who's in favor of legalizing drugs. This is a guy who's in favor of raising the minimum wage. This is a guy who's in favor of universal health care. Now, you know, look, it, sometimes on culture war issues, does he lean right in the sense that he talks about the, the overreaches of wokeness? Well, of course, but I, I would argue that's not even necessarily just um, a, a right-wing take, that if you're standing against any kind of authoritarianism that's an inherently libertarian view, and there's both the libertarian right and the libertarian left, so that's not even an inherently right-wing thing, but the people in the media are so dumb that if they see some critique of wokeness, they think, think this is a right-winger. Who did Joe Rogan support in the last presidential race? Well, first he gave an endorsement of Tulsi, and then eventually he said, I'm probably going to vote for Bernie. And they look at that and they go, well, since he's critical of corporate Democrats, uh, we just are going to typecast him as a Trump supporter. And they think he's a hardcore MAGA guy, and so they just go out there and lie. And they think that attacking Joe Rogan is akin to, like, attacking Fox News or something. But what, you know, they're realizing, or at least some of the people at the Washington Post are realizing, is that you're attacking the number one podcaster in the world who has an averse, a diverse array of people in the audience of all political persuasions, and now all of them are looking at you like, why are you doing this? So, again, it's not to say there's no legitimate criticisms of Joe. Of course there are, and I've made them, and I'll continue to make them when I think they're merited. But I don't think anybody can deny that what CNN did here is basically a war on nuance. They wanted to own Rogan, and so they said he's taking horse paste. He's taking a horse dewormer. And um, they dug the hole so deep that now even other elite media rags are like, reel it in a little bit, dog. Reel it in. So, I mean, if anything, the, the silver lining in this whole conversation is this, that now a lot more people have maybe woken up to the fact that y- you can't trust mainstream media. You can't. And it's a tragedy because what often happens is because there's a complete lack of trust in our traditional institutions now, people turn to alternative sources, which also were packed full of charlatans and con men and frauds. And so they don't realize it, but just by virtue of the way that they're acting here, they're boosting a lot of nefarious, terrible actors who portray themselves as the antidote to mainstream media lies. But it's not true because the outlets that are portraying themselves as the solution also have a terrible track record, whether it be Newsmax or One American News Network or like Daily Wire or Daily Caller or whatever. They're arguably even more incorrect about shit. And obviously, if you watch this show, you know that because I've broken it down in tremendous detail how wrong they are about almost everything. So um, it sucks, man. We, we're, in, we're not in a good place right now. And I don't think people even know where to turn to get information that they trust to get information that's verifiable and provable and everything seems to be hyper politicized and a lot of people in the media seem to you know make decisions based off personal grudges and that's not good that's really not good so cnn triples down they're only going to hurt themselves even more 
And um, I think it's time that everybody realizes that um, my general view, and you guys know this, is you should be skeptical of everything and everyone. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say you should be cynical, because I think that's, that overreaches. Uh, but be skeptical of everything and everyone and try to come to your own conclusion based on whatever the data is with the conversation at hand. And that's all you can do. That's all you can do. But obviously, we're living in a bit of a, an information desert because the people who we're supposed to be relying on to give us news, information, education, are, uh, they have their own personal biases and their own ax to grind, and um, it's never been more apparent than it is right now. Okay, next. All right. Now let's talk about Candace Owens. So Candace Owens has a new show. Um, forget which outlet it's on. One of the daily outlets, Daily Wire, Daily Caller, one of those, one of the horrible right-wing rags. Um, she is a pompous blowhard who doesn't know anything but talks with an extreme amount of confidence, so dupes people into believing her or just makes it so that right-wingers can uh, have confirmation bias and um, feel like they're getting getting uh, a level of certitude for their prior held beliefs that is unmerited. So she goes out on her show and makes an argument here about Australia that is absurd. So I will say that the media is misleading people on this. There are a bunch of headlines about how Candace Owens calls to invade Australia. That's actually not true. I watched the whole segment, and she clearly says she she literally says I'm saying that in jest. Like, of course, I don't want to invade Australia, um, but she's making the point that we talked about freedom and democracy and in going into Afghanistan. Well, what about freedom and democracy to go into Australia? Because in her opinion, they're massively restricting freedom and democracy. So she doesn't actually want to invade Australia. But what's amazing is people are burying the lead because there was a equally ridiculous, if not more ridiculous, statement she actually made in the same segment. Take a look. For the last 20 years, the United States has spent trillions of dollars overseas in Afghanistan fighting a war, which we lost, by the way. We were told that the war was necessary anyway. It was necessary. The slaughtering of American sons and daughters on foreign soil because we were fighting a noble cause to spread democracy in a tyrannical land to free and oppress people. So I'm going to ask those same lecturing politicians and media members a question now. When do we deploy troops to Australia? When do we invade Australia and free and oppress people who are suffering under a totalitarian regime? When do we spend trillions of dollars to spread democracy in Australia? Australia currently, make no mistake, is a tyrannical police state. Its citizens are quite literally being imprisoned against their will. So when do we deploy? Of course, I ask that in jest because we all know the real answer. What's happening in Australia under the guise of a virus, which, by the way, as of August 7, 2021, experts estimate the overall recovery rate is between 97% and 99.75%. What's actually happening under the guise of this virus is federal overreach, tyranny, totalitarianism, 
the kind that gives birth to evil dictatorships and human atrocity. We are watching a replay of the early ambitions of Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez. That is what is hiding beneath the guise of this fictitious, perpetual need to slow the spread. We all know the more truth that what's happening in Australia was meant to happen here in America, that this current totalitarian administration is fighting tooth and nail to trample state rights and federalize America, and if it were not for Republican governors standing in the way, we would be similarly stripped right now of our, our most basic of individual freedoms. See, those last two points are the points that everybody's overlooking, but that's actually the absurd part. So she was clearly not advocating we invade Australia. Um, But what she is saying is what's going on in Australia, their response to COVID makes them like, and I quote, Hitler, Stalin, Fidel Castro, and Hugo Chavez. Now, uh, just put aside the absurdity that she's so uneducated on this topic and she's such a propagandist that she doesn't understand that there is a, a grand canyon of a difference between all of those figures. Stalin, Hitler, Fidel Castro, and Hugo Chavez. You're putting Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez, whatever you think of them, you're putting them in the same category as Stalin and Hitler? Why not tattoo on your forehead, I'm a fucking ignorant dumbass? You should do that, because clearly you know nothing about probably any of them. Uh, so um, then she goes on to say, and the reality is, this is what this uh, administration wants to do here. Okay, so let me give you just some basic facts about what's going on in Australia. Now, Australia has been, it's true, they've been very aggressive with uh, cracking down on COVID. So they, they do have a much more top-down response than the United States. They do have uh, a much more, I think it's fair to call it authoritarian response compared to the United States. Uh, one, for one thing, they have these snap lockdowns whenever there's any cases. And um, now, listen, as I have my own biases coming into this conversation, as an American, I can only shake my, uh, my commitment to individualism so much. Uh, I am a Yankee tried and true at heart. So when I look back on how we handled COVID from the beginning, we mismanaged it in a thousand different ways. But um, lockdowns are not my cup of tea. I think that we should have basically copied the Japanese approach, which is like universal masking. And I think, you know, uh, the vaccine obviously should have been pushed aggressively, and I like the idea of you could either, either get the vaccine or get tested all the time. I love that idea. I think that that's the best way to approach this. Now, it is true. Australia goes further than that. They have these snap lockdowns. But having said that, I wouldn't want to be in Australia over the United States, but you also can't deny the effects of what they've done. So the downside is, yes, there are some more restrictions on freedom, but the upside is I believe their total number of dead in the entire pandemic is about 1,500 people. In fact, let me fact check this this live on air uh, as I'm talking to you. I'll give you the exact number. So we have a grand total of 1,448 deaths in all of Australia during this pandemic. Now compare that to the United States. Let's take a look. United States deaths from COVID. 736,000. Now, even if you, you know, because obviously just looking at the raw numbers is not sufficient. You have to do it per capita to see the reality. But even if you look at it per capita, we are a gigantic mess. I mean, nearly a million people have died, and they're faring relatively well in terms of the number of deaths from COVID. So 
Now, she doesn't give you any of those facts. She doesn't give you any of that information because what she wants to do is paint a biased picture and push her narrative. She doesn't want to say, well, look, here's, here are the downsides, but, I mean, I, I can't bury the lead here. The upside would be people aren't dying in nearly as high numbers. But she doesn't tell you that important piece of context because she's a propagandist. Now, again, I have my own bias coming into this conversation. I do have a bias towards individualism to some extent. I do have a bias towards freedom to some extent, which is why, looking back on it, I don't like the idea of the lockdowns. I would have just done universal masking policy instead. But she would have called universal masking authoritarian as well. She would have called any basic regulations to try to stop a global pandemic. She would have called it authoritarian. And she would have done exactly what she did, which is say, this administration, meaning Biden, is like Stalin, Hitler, Fidel Castro, and Hugo Chavez. So Australia is like Hitler, and Biden is like Hitler. And by the way, to pretend like there's no difference between what Australia's doing and what the U.S. is doing is just a lie. There's no way, there's no way around that. It's not like, oops, she just forgot the nuance of it. No, because what, what's Biden's approach? Well, I don't know. Why don't we look at what he did for his approach? Have there been lockdowns? No. Biden didn't lock down the economy. In fact, Biden has taken the opposite position, and he said it strongly, that we're not going to lock down again. Okay, so why are you lying? As if Biden is the same as Australia, when Australia likes to go into these snap lockdowns whenever there's cases. Candace, that's just a lie, and you know that's a lie. There's, there's, the way they've approached it is not even close to the same. And there are some people who would argue, well, they like the Australian way better. Now, again, me personally, I don't. I like the Biden way better. The other part of Biden's policy is what? She would say, an authoritarian vaccine mandate that Joe Biden is doing. It's not an authoritarian mandate if you have an option of either get the vaccine or get tested. And that's what Biden did. And he only did it for businesses with 100 employees or more. So just just an outright war on nuance and complexity and detail. And she's being hyperbolic because she's a hack. And again, to make the case, Hitler, Australia is like Hitler. Biden is like Hitler. We, do we even need to get into the details? You guys all know this. You guys, you know, the overwhelming majority of you who watch this show are educated on topics like this. You care about history. You care about politics. Millions and millions, what is it, six million people that died as a result of Hitler. Concentration camps, gas chambers, starving people to death, uh, literally trying to take over the world and actually succeeding to a large degree in taking over vast swaths of Europe, almost all of Europe. And you're going to compare lockdowns from a virus to active genocide. And you're going to compare Joe Biden, whose approach has been no lockdowns, vaccinate or test. That's like Adolf Hitler. He wants to do that. But it's a big, brave Republican governors are stopping him. Nobody should take her seriously. Nobody. And my message to the media is this. You don't need to lie or mislead people when she says the ridiculous thing two seconds after the thing you made the headline. So the original article in The Guardian said something to the effect of, you know, Candace Owens wants to invade Australia, or Candace Owens asked when we're going to invade Australia to bring them, like, freedom and democracy. But clearly, you saw the clip. Now, I'm, I'm second to none in my hatred of Candace Owens, but clearly she said, I'm asking this in jest. Uh, so... I don't know why you make that the headline when the ridiculous thing she said is right after that. Oh, Australia and this administration are like Stalin, Hitler, Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez. Absolutely absurd. And the other thing is, you know that it's just rank partisanship with her, too. So, you know, 
you want to talk about authoritarian crackdowns, what do you think Guantanamo Bay is? What do you think um, Edward Snowden revealed, you know, what happened under the Bush administration and under the Obama administration, where we have NSA spying and collection of metadata on all Americans? You have no protection from unreasonable search and seizure anymore. That's pretty authoritarian. The drug war in this country, which locks up people for nonviolent so-called crimes, we jail more people than any other nation on earth, and that's authoritarian, but it's like there are no, there's never a substantive criticism, and it never applies to the right. It's always just through a partisan lens and always against the left and always hyperbolic. I got a zillion problems with Biden. Uh, his COVID strategy being like Hitler is not one of them because I have a functioning brain and I don't have a cinder block where my head is. So, Jesus Christ, man. By the way, she also just does, I don't know if you caught it there, but there's a couple little hints she drops there. that She's doing outright COVID denialism. She says, this fictitious need to slow the spread. Fictitious need to slow the spread? Look, it's one thing to argue I think their, their stuff goes too far. And on that, I might agree. It's another thing to say it's a fictitious need to slow the spread. Fictitious need to slow the spread? There's nothing fictitious about wanting to stop the spread of a deadly virus. Now, but now, by the way, she goes on to say, like, the, you know, the recovery rate from this is like 99.75% or something to that effect. And what a dumb way of talking about this pandemic. Because that gives a, a, a misleading picture. Yeah, and we have what? Again, 736,000 deaths in the United States. It's the biggest mass death event in United States history, and you're downplaying it. And I forget who said it. It might have been one of the founding fathers. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's a great example of, you know, giving a statistic that, that's colossally misleading. And, you know, this is, this is Candace Owens' job. So don't fault, like, her, her smug condescension, how she always talks like she's, you know, super certain of herself and super arrogant and super on, super on top of it. There's no way you could look at that unless you're already colossally brainwashed and say anything other than she's lying, she's being misleading, she's being hyperbolic because she's a partisan hack. So there you have it. And again, to the media, there's no reason to overreach when she says ridiculous things in the segment that you're taking something out of context from. Okay, next. Go to John Stewart. So John Stewart is coming to the defense of Dave Chappelle over his controversial special. Um, here's a headline in the Hill. John Stewart offers support for Chappelle. Quote, intention is never hurtful. So let me give you a little bit more of what he says here. Uh, John Stewart said that Chappelle's, quote, intention is never hurtful. He's just not that kind of person. He said Dave is, quote, good and decent. Quote, I love that dude as a person. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, now, in the article, they point out as well that Dave Chappelle was leaving the door open to a discussion with members of the transgender community. His representative said, quote, Dave stands by his art. No more jokes about transgenders until we can all laugh together. That's one of the things that he, he said in the special. Uh, quote, the streets, the streets are talking and Dave is listening. At some point, when everyone is open, I'm sure the communities will come together. 
And um, in a brief interview with TMZ, John Stewart said, if this spurs a conversation where people get more on the same page in terms of understanding, that'd be great. So um, this is uh, John Stewart basically coming to, I think, a relatively strong defense of Dave Chappelle here. Uh, there are some people on the left who don't think this is a, a good defense. My take on it is it's a wonderful defense. In fact, it's the same, one of the same points I made in my multiple segments on this. Look, when it comes to art, when you're talking about the realm of art, as long as the intention is not outwardly bigoted, xenophobic, hurtful on purpose, then art gets a pass. It just does. The example that I've been giving nonstop is that The Sopranos, HBO TV show, is widely viewed as one of the best, if not the best, uh, shows of all time. And um, there are parts of it, challenge any of you to go back and watch it, that are wildly racist. Um, Tony Soprano's daughter dates uh, a black guy, and, it, you know, he's dropping N-bombs left and right. I mean, just, there's no doubt about it. It's clearly racist. And I, the NAACP didn't come out and say, you know, you should pull this and nobody should watch this, and here's a list of demands we have over it. Um, they understand that it's part of the show, and if anything, it's sort of illuminating um, a mindset that probably existed, without a doubt, in mafia culture in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, probably to this day. So I can give a thousand examples of whether it's movies, comedy specials, other forms of art, music, where there's problematic stuff in there. But as a general rule, people kind of keep their powder dry for real systemic reform and changes which could materially improve the lives of oppressed communities and everybody in the conversation. So the point I've made about transgender people is it's still legal in this country in over 20 states to say, I'm not going to hire you because you're transgender or I'm going to fire you because you're transgender or get out of my store, you're transgender and I think it's weird. In over 20 states, you wouldn't have a case. If you're a transgender person, you walk into a store in some rural backwoods area in Mississippi, and they're like, we don't serve your kind, get out, you would lose your case because the transgender community is not part of uh, any non-discrimination protections. They're not a protected class. So that's a real systemic problem that materially affects trans people in a, in a horrendous way. And instead of uh, harnessing all the energy towards let's petition Biden to sign an executive order to get trans people as a protected class, to have anti-discrimination protections for trans people, all the anger is being directed at Netflix and at a comedian. And some people are saying, hey, you better pull that special down. And then others are saying, don't pull it down, but here's my list of demands. We want trigger warnings before anything that might be bigoted on uh, Netflix. And we want basically like a fairness doctrine type thing where any, any content they view as transphobic is balanced with stuff that's viewed as pro-trans. Um, and... I just think it's, uh, it's an opportunity missed. And any of the attempts to get it flat out pulled, I would just, I would just categorize that as authoritarian. And um, if anything, it's going to lead to a massive backlash against the, the trans community, or at the very least the people who are protesting here and saying, here are demands, because the demands I don't think are reasonable. And I have to be honest with, about that. I have to keep it real with you guys. I'm not going to come out here and say, you know, uh, I think it's fair and I think it's just simply because it's coming from an oppressed group. That doesn't mean you turn off your brain and you just have to concede on everything. So John Stewart is right. John Stewart is right. Now, listen, 
are there areas where intention doesn't matter as much? Um, well, yeah. You know, I think that when you talk about people literally dying, maybe intention doesn't matter as much. I mean, there's, it still matters, right? There's a difference between manslaughter and murder, and the law reflects that, that you get less time in prison if it's manslaughter versus if it's murder. Um, but maybe it's not as relevant because somebody died, and you, you, know, you assess the crime based on the damage it did to the victim. Uh, but when it comes to art, again, I've o- and I've always had this position, I've advocated for it on this show a thousand times over, it largely gets a pass because unless the, the, it's purposefully hurtful, bigoted, transphobic, whatever, then I don't see how there can be any reasonable standard where you say, pull it down, I don't like it, without opening the door for everybody to say, pull it down, I don't like that, pull it down, I don't like that. I mean, I told you guys my mom watched The Sopranos and was like, I don't like the way it portrays Italians because, you know, I come from an Italian family, she's Italian, and... I, I listen to that and I go, you're sort of being like oversensitive here, aren't you? It's a mafia show about the mafia. So like sort of get over it. And, but I, I feel the same way about what's happening with the trans community here. The ones who are protesting, the people who are walking out of Netflix. You might not like the special. Don't fucking watch it. That's it. Or write a rebuttal and do an article on it. And some people did do that. And there was even one criticism that I thought was reasonable. There was one criticism that was like, I'm not asking you to stop making trans jokes. I'm, stop, I'm asking you to stop making the same trans jokes that effectively aren't funny. That was one person's response. That's fair. And in that article, they didn't even say, hey, we want you to pull down the special. So that's fair. But anybody who wants to pull it down or anybody who wants to radically change Netflix as a result of this, I think they're, what's the saying? Missing the forest through the trees? Something like that? Missing the forest for the trees? You get the point. Um, so I think John Stewart is 100% correct. Dave Chappelle is not a hateful person. Uh, that's very clear if you watch um, all of his stand-up specials. Uh, he means well and is a comedian making jokes, and it clearly resonated. This is one of those ones where the, the uh, critics gave it super low ratings, but the public gave it really high ratings. Now, me personally, I watched the special, and I don't think it's his best work. Uh, I think it was maybe a little too preachy and not enough putting the funny before the preachiness, but that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it's... It is what it is. I don't want it pulled. And he even says, I'm not going to talk about this issue anymore until we're all laughing together. And so as far as I'm concerned, it's squashed. But it would be good if the energy was geared towards real systemic change to help marginalized communities as opposed to an authoritarian overreach to control art, pull it down, or micromanage it to the point where it's not funny and nothing's ever funny. In the same way, I tell my mom to sort of Roll with the punches here. If you don't like how The Sopranos portrays Italians, so be it. You know, if it's art. And what Dave Chappelle did here is art, whether or not you like it. So, again, I think Jon Stewart is 100% on point here. Um, I think the, the intentions matter massively when it comes to art. And if you don't like it, don't watch it or write some sort of rebuttal or whatever. But to take it down or put trigger warnings on all potentially bigoted stuff on Netflix I think goes too far. Some fairness doctrine thing on Netflix goes too far. Um, Some fund with equal money to what Dave Chappelle got for trans, um, you know, entertainers. I think that goes too far, too, because Dave became number one comedian in the world and paid his dues and worked his way up from nothing and been working since the 1990s until today. And you just want to pick random trans entertainers and give them the equivalent of what Chappelle got. Chappelle probably got tens of millions of dollars. So what you're saying is just give it to me based on the fact that I'm trans and nothing else. That goes too far. And I have no problem whatsoever with some sort of fund to develop trans talent or whatever. That's fine. But my understanding is, if you look at Netflix 
the stuff that's on Netflix, they've already done a lot for trans issues. In fact, they have a number of pro-trans documentaries, movies, what have you, on there. And they make that point. And also, they've hired a diverse array of people, and they make that point. So effectively, um, we're kind of at an impasse here in a way. Because on the one hand, you have people saying, if you don't like it, that sucks, but it is what it is. There will be no authoritarian takedowns. There will be no uh, micromanaging of Netflix. And on the other hand, you have people who say, well, here's our list of demands. Well, again, if I don't think there can be a resolution on that front, but all I would say is harness that energy towards active, actual positive systemic change. And uh, beyond that, I think Netflix will continue to try to have balanced perspective because that's what they were doing in the first place anyway. But the outrage and the uproar over what this Chappelle special is, I think is a little much to say the least. Now, I'm biased. I was a Dave Chappelle fan my entire life, but I just told you this wasn't my favorite special. But um, I think Jon Stewart effectively hit the nail on the head, and cooler heads will prevail, but Chappelle clearly let the criticism get to him, and that's why he's been obsessed with this for a while. Thankfully, he's moving on from it either way because tired of seeing nonstop articles about one particular comedy special that sort of made the world come to a standstill. Again, as opposed to, I've been following the, the reconciliation bill negotiation, $3.5 trillion package now being whittled down to under $2 trillion. You have free college now being left out. They might even leave out lower prescription drug prices. They're shortening the window massively for the child tax credit. All these things materially hurt people so much. And there is one twentieth the coverage for that versus this culture war nonsense. And I think that's incredibly damaging and destructive and terrible and negative. So we should focus more on what's going on with that package as opposed to this stuff, because if we harness all of our energy towards positive ends fighting on that front, the outcome is a lot better than taking negative feelings and harnessing it towards pulling down a comedy special or micromanaging Netflix. All right, next. So um, Joe Biden did a town hall recently. Apparently it got abysmal ratings, but there was one moment that popped to a lot of people watching it. He was asked about Taiwan. And what's going on over there? Now, tensions are on the rise between China and Taiwan. And um, the U.S. has an interesting policy approach when it comes to Taiwan. I'm going to discuss it after you see this video. But he's basically asked, would you come to the defense of Taiwan if China invades? And here's his answer. Bring in uh, Glenn Niblo, a student at Loyola University, originally from Connecticut. He's Republican. Glenn, welcome. Uh, where in Connecticut are you from? Uh, Granite. Uh, China just tested a hypersonic missile. What will you do to keep up with them militarily, and can you vow to protect Taiwan? Yes and yes. We are militarily China 
Russia and the rest of the world knows we have the most powerful military in the history of the world. Don't worry about whether we're going to, they're going to be more powerful. What you do have to worry about is whether or not they're going to engage in activities that will put them in a position where they may make a serious mistake. And so I have had, I've spoken and spent more time with Xi Jinping than any other world leader has. That's why you have, you know, you hear people saying Biden wants to start a new Cold War with China. I don't want a Cold War with China. I just want to make China understand that we are not going to step back. We are not going to change any of our views. So are you saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes. China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment. No, indeed, we do not. So uh, Jen Psaki came out the day after and basically walked that statement back in, men, in so many words. Um, the U.S. policy approach towards Taiwan is something called strategic ambiguity. And the idea behind it is we sort of treat Taiwan as its own thing, its own independent nation of sorts, even though it's technically really not. So there's the one China policy and that includes Taiwan. Now, of course, the sentiment in Taiwan much more leans on the side of we want to be our own thing, um, but the one China policy dictates that effectively they're not their own thing. And again, the United States approach is strategic ambiguity. So it's like we treat them as their own thing. Uh, we sort of trade with them as their own thing. I believe we even provide them with weapons that are quote unquote defensive in nature. Um, but there is no stated like, oh, if China does something to try to reclaim it in a way that we're going to come to their defense and we're going to fight on their behalf. And so when Biden says, well, that, that's, we have a commitment, that's actually not true. So he seemingly doesn't know what the U.S. policy uh, towards Taiwan is. And naturally, you know, in Beijing, they heard this and the Chinese brass are like, easy there, Tiger. Easy. Watch what you're saying. And uh, so now tensions have ramped up yet again. And there's been uh, movement in Taiwan. There's been an escalation of tension, tensions in, in other respects as well with um, uh, military planes from China flying nearby to Taiwan and sort of a, a show of force of sorts. And, um, you know, China currently engaged in the Belt and Road Initiative, which ha doesn't have anything to do with Taiwan, but it is sort of a, an expansion of empire uh, through debt, in a sense where, you know, the U.S. goes in guns blazing to places and takes them over by force. Or what we do is we overthrow a democratically elected government and put in a puppet dictator, and then we effectively claim the region, even though we haven't claimed the region. That's the history of the United States and in South America, for example, and exploit it on behalf of our corporations. Um, but China has sort of evolved one step beyond that when it comes to empire, and their ideas, the Belt and Road Initiative, is like, what if we actually materially went in and built infrastructure for a lot of these developing countries and built a strategic alliance on the backs of that. And then we use sort of the, the gesture of goodwill up front to then exploit the regions. And so China is being a lot more intelligent with uh, how they're sort of plotting their global dominance than the U.S. is as the world's sole superpower. Um, and this is just an, an example of a massive increase in tensions with China. And listen, my position on this, and you guys know this, I've, I've voiced similar um, concerns when it comes to NATO. I think this is fucking insanity. See, a lot of people like to, in this conversation, a lot of people like to bring up what happened in World War II. So namely, well, Hitler was being appeased, and 
you can't appease somebody like Hitler because he was hell-bent on global domination, and he would have done everything by force and, and taken it over by force. And there were these, you know, treaties that were made with Hitler. Um, and Neville Chamberlain, very famously, was waving the sheet of paper like, look, we got a peace agreement with Hitler, and so now we've divvied up the land and how it's going to be, and German, uh, Germany gets this extra territory, but they don't go any further than this, and they thought it was a victory. And then what happened was, it's true, Hitler was unappeasable. Winston Churchill was right in that respect, and so he kept expanding and expanding and expanding, and then eventually we had World War II. And um, that's the lesson that people are drawing from, is World War II. But it's interesting because nobody ever talks about the, that World War I actually has the opposite lesson. So if the, if the lesson of World War II is what? Some people are unappeasable. There is no way to have, you know, negotiate peace with them. If they're hell-bent on world domination, they're going to try to do world domination. And Hitler wanted to do, do it by force. That's the lesson of World War II. The lesson of World War I is actually the opposite, which is if you have these treaties where independent nations are tied into the future of other nations, and so in other words, if country X is drawn into a war, then country Y has a, an obligation because of a treaty to also jump into that war on that side. But then country C hops in and country L has to hop in on the side of country C. And so what happens is if you have all these mutual defense treaties, does, if people actually abide by them, it doesn't take long for the entire fucking world to be at war. So you get random Archduke Ferdinand gets assassinated in, I think, what, Austria-Hungary, and the next thing you know, the entire world is at war. That's World War II. That's, excuse me, that's World War I. Why? Why did that happen? Because everybody had these strategic alliances where, hey, if I go to war, you go to war with me, right? Okay, right. And if they go to war, they go to war with them. And everybody abided by the treaties. And so the entire world was at war. And in that, the takeaway from that world war, the lesson from this one, is the opposite of the lesson of World War I. The takeaway of World War II, excuse me. I'm, I can't talk today, and that sucks because... I talk for a living. Anyway, uh, so the takeaway from World War I is maybe we shouldn't have strategic alliances with all these other independent nations because if there happens to be something that happens in one of them, then we get drawn in, then somebody else gets drawn in, then somebody else gets drawn in, and next thing you know, the entire world is at war. Whereas if it was more of like a go-it-alone attempt, uh, a go-it-alone approach, then you would have had a much more um, compartmentalized and fragmented war on a much smaller scale, which would have been significantly less bloody. So the lesson of World War I was actually non-interventionism is better. Or, you know, the pejorative term people use is isolationism is better. So it, this is why history is fascinating, because it's endlessly uh, complex and nuanced, where in some instances it seems like the right thing is not to be non-interventionist. If you have somebody who's really hell-bent on world domination, you need to ally with the people who want to fight back against that evil force. But on the flip side, if you have something that would just be a regional conflict and you uh, team up and get involved, well, then the whole world could be at war when it could have just been a regional conflict. So in some instances, non-interventionism is vastly preferable, I'd argue in most cases, because not everybody's Hitler, but in rare instances, interventionism is preferable. So in this instance, where does this one fall? I don't think it's a tough one at all. I think this is a lot more like World War I than World War II. And I think that if you do, let's say for argument's sake, China does something in regards to Taiwan, do I feel terrible for the people of Taiwan? Yes. Um, but is it something I'd send U.S. soldiers to fight and die for? No. Some random kid in Kentucky probably can't even point out Taiwan on a map, and you want him to go fight and die for Taiwan? 
Now, again, you can make the argument, well, this is more like World War II, and Xi Jinping is like Hitler, and therefore we have a moral obligation to go do it. I simply don't agree with you. I don't think Xi Jinping, even though I think Xi Jinping is terrible, I don't think he's Hitler. I don't think almost anybody is like Adolf Hitler, and I think history, broadly speaking, is much more on my side than anybody who would make the case a thousand world leaders are like Adolf Hitler. So my takeaway is that this is a lot more like World War I. It would be a colossal error if uh, China does something in regards to Taiwan and invades or does some show of force and then the U.S. responds in kind and escalates, then, you know, we're off to the races. And people think everything's so settled and, and secure these days that there wouldn't be a World War III. How the fuck do you know? After World War I, they thought there was going to be no World War II, and then there was World War II. You know, everything's fragile. And cooler heads need to prevail. If I really thought we were in a Hitler-like situation, then my opinion would be the opposite. I don't think we're in a Hitler-like situation. So as much as I feel terrible for the people of Taiwan, and if they want their own independence, I support them in getting their own independence, but I don't want the U.S. to get involved, and I don't want the U.S. to uh, fight a war on behalf of Taiwan. And if we do that, then it's us versus China, which is World War III, which is then all these other countries get brought in, you know, obviously Europe on our side, and then Russia on China's side, and... We're off to the races. So I think terrible comment from Joe Biden, disastrous comment from Joe Biden, and a massive escalation of tensions. And he shouldn't say this. And his administration basically acknowledged that the next day when they said, our policy towards Taiwan hasn't changed. So in other words, what they're saying is, uh, let that one slide, give him a mulligan, because we're really doing strategic ambiguity. So we're going to continue to treat Taiwan as its own thing, even though it's technically not, and uh, it's going to remain there. So in other words, we're not just going to come to the defense of Taiwan if China invades. Um, but I think the other thing is I think Biden, even though he did the right thing on Afghanistan and pulling out, I think he feels like he's overcompensating because now it's like he's viewed as weak by the deep state and the intelligence agencies and elite media. And so he's trying to be like, I'm not weak. I'm not weak. And so he gets asked that question and he's like, yeah, of course I, I defend Taiwan if something were to happen. Well, so you're saying you do World War III with China over Taiwan? Because that is what ultimately would happen. So anyway, I think a terrible answer from Joe Biden and um, way too many people think everything is World War II and everyone is Hitler. No, sometimes it's World War I, and we should invade, uh, we should, excuse me, avoid, hilarious Freudian slip, we should avoid um, those ends where everybody gets pulled in because of what we view as obligations. So there you have it. That's my breakdown. Um, cooler heads need to prevail. We need to negotiate. We need to be intelligent. And if there are instances where I think that won't work and we're dealing with a Hiller, I'll tell you guys, but I don't think this is one of those instances. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, a Democratic representative uh, says that Biden is the most progressive president in U.S. history. LOL, dog. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
back to the beach. All right, y'all. We are back. We are back. We are back. Let's continue. Representative Richie Torres, he's a Democrat, um, most known in left circles for being vehemently pro-Israel to a comical degree. He um, went on MSNBC, I believe, here, and said something that is beyond absurd while discussing the reconciliation negotiation currently going on. Well, progressive caucus is enormously grateful to President Biden, who's emerged as the most progressive president in the history of the United States. Uh, he's a man on a mission. He's intent on passing not one but two of the largest infrastructure investments in American history. And the purpose of the meeting was to impress upon members of Congress a sense of urgency around landing these planes as swiftly and as smoothly as we can. Most progressive president in U.S. history, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, the most progressive president in U.S. history. That's almost too dumb to comment on. I'm not kidding, guys. I almost left this segment on the cutting room floor when I was prepping the show. I was like, should I talk about this? It's so ridiculous that I probably shouldn't. But I decided ultimately, no, not only am I going to respond, I'm going to respond in detail because this needs to be thoroughly debunked. Now, I don't think many people believe this, if anybody, but um, suffice to say, it is wildly off base. So first, let's, let's go through the obvious things. Joe Biden was very clear on the campaign trail that I'm going to deliver on $2,000 checks to the American people. And um, he immediately went back on that, went in power, immediately. Broke his word on $2,000 checks. He broke his word on a national $15 minimum wage. That was supposed to be in the last reconciliation package. It didn't make it in. Now, you can say, hey, that's because of the seven or eight Democrats who were opposed to it. So it's not really Biden's fault. But if indeed he was the most progressive president in U.S. history, there are specifically two other presidents who would have found a way to twist some arms and get it in there. LBJ and FDR. Again, more on that in a little bit. Um, He used Title 42 that's from the Trump era, to deport more people than Donald Trump. Does that sound like the most progressive president in U.S. history? He has the ability to eliminate all student loan debt with the swipe of a pen, and instead he eliminated just $6 billion of $1.73 trillion in student loan debt. So you do the percentage on that. Not too pretty. Uh, He said that he'd veto Medicare for all if it got to his desk, even though we're the only developed country that doesn't have a universal health care system. And then he even abandoned a public option when in office, which is the thing that he ran on. Now, he kept us in Iraq. He kept us in Syria. He didn't get us back in the Iran deal, even though he promised to do it. And it was actually uh, the policy of the administration where he was vice president, that Iran deal. So another way in which he's massively failed. Again, does any of this sound like the most progressive president in U.S. history? Now, listen, I'll tell you when he does good things. I'm not a hack. And so what are some of the good things? He did get us out of Afghanistan. 
Um, I'm sure there's still drone strikes going on, which is abysmal and terrible, but it is a fact that there are no more, quote, boots on the ground in Afghanistan. I give him credit for that. Mainstream media attacks him the most for that because it's the best thing he did. Um, He did get us $1,400 checks, but it was a one-time deal. And, And that's the problem, by the way. It's even if he does something good, it's just a one-time deal usually. Like that, uh, you know, stimulus package for COVID, it was a one-shot of adrenaline into the economy. What you'll find is that far more progressive presidents leave lasting programs. Lasting. The other good thing Biden did is he signed an executive order to do a $15 minimum wage for every federal government employee and federal government contractor. Credit where it's due. That's wonderful. That affects 400,000 workers. Sure, those 400,000 workers greatly appreciate it. However, again, he failed to get into the reconciliation bill to get us a national, federal $15 minimum wage. So these are areas where he failed. I also gave you some of the bright spots, but the bright spots aren't nearly enough. Let's talk about FDR. Well, uh, literally two words destroy the notion that uh, Biden is the most progressive president in U.S. history. New deal. New deal. On that alone, game, set, match, done. How about Lyndon B. Johnson? Three words destroy the notion that Biden's the most progressive president in U.S. history. War on poverty. He got a lot of crap because he did what's called a a guns and butter approach. And so the guns part is he continued Vietnam, which was an absolute disaster. But the butter approach was let's do a war on poverty. Now, despite what right-wing hacks tell you, the statistics show, the numbers show, it was actually wildly successful. If we didn't do the war on poverty, we would have been a lot worse off. So just on that alone, FDR is more progressive, LBJ is more progressive in terms of how they dealt with politics behind the scenes. By the way, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, that was LBJ. And by the way, it's, on the, it's, on, it's a historical fact, it's on the record, that he was a, a vicious racist, and he still signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. That is more progressive than anything Joe Biden has ever done and probably will ever do. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I highly doubt it. And then finally, and this is probably the most important point, to show you just how wrong Torres is here, there's an argument that even a modern-era Republican president was more progressive than Joe Biden. Who am I talking about? Richard Nixon. So what did Nixon do? Well, Nixon gave us the EPA. He gave us OSHA. He gave us the Consumer Product Safety Act which is you know, one of the reasons why when we have a recall, we can get the recall done really quickly if there's a problem with the product. Um, he did the Clean Air Act. He did the Clean Water Act. He did the Endangered Species Act. He expanded Medicare to disabled people under the age of 65 years old. Richard Nixon, in many ways, was more progressive than Joe Biden. So this idea that he's the most progressive president in U.S. history is hilarious. And by the way, What these guys like to do is rig the game. How? By just taking whatever the proposals are and pretending like that's the end of the conversation. So the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, if it passed, it would be the biggest transformation of the U.S. economy since the New Deal. So then I still don't think it would be correct that he's the most progressive in U.S. history, but you have a much better argument if the $3.5 trillion did pass. Well, guess what? It didn't, and they're currently whittling it down, whittling it down, whittling it down, and it's ultimately going to be under $2 trillion dollars and it's going to be nothing. It's going to be, there's going to be nothing in it that's permanent, which really defines a legacy. If Joe Biden just gave us free college and paid family leave, those two programs, and made them permanent, that'd be much better than this uh, you know, smorgasbord of, of half measures. 
which is what we're looking at here with the under $2 trillion deal, which will probably come out soon. So, I mean, just ridiculous, man. Who, do you say, who are you kidding when you say something like this? Are you depending on everybody to be colossally ignorant? Apparently the answer is yes. Okay, next. So there's uh, some new information that just came out in regards to the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a piece in Vanity Fair. They say, in major shift, NIH, National Institute of Health, admits funding risky virus research in Wuhan. A spokesman for Dr. Fauci says he has been, quote, entirely truthful, but a new letter belatedly acknowledging the National Institute of Health's support for virus-enhancing research adds more heat to the ongoing debate over whether a lab leak could have sparked the pandemic. Huh. Isn't that interesting? So I'll just read you this one part of the article. This gives you the gist of it here. On Wednesday, the NIH sent a letter to members of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce that acknowledged two facts. One was that EcoHealth Alliance, a New York City-based nonprofit that partners with far-flung laboratories to research and prevent the outbreak of emerging diseases, did indeed enhance a bat coronavirus to become potentially more infectious to humans, which the NIH letter described as an unexpected result of the research it funded that was carried out in partnership with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The second was that EcoHealth Alliance violated the terms of its grant conditions, stipulating that it had to report if its research increased the viral growth of a pathogen by tenfold. So in other words, they did increase um, the viral growth of the pathogen by tenfold, and they didn't report it, so they tried to hide it. Listen, dog. Um, Remember not that long ago when Jon Stewart went on Colbert's show and he was joking and effectively saying, well, obviously this thing came from the Wuhan lab. Why was he making that argument? Why was he saying that? Because it would be a phenomenal coincidence if a very lethal bat coronavirus didn't come from bat coronavirus research central, which happens to be located in the same city that the outbreak started. Now, is it impossible? Well, no, of course, if there's wet markets there and the wet market theory, if the evidence lined up with the wet market theory, then it's like, okay, maybe it is the wet market. But what Stewart was pushing back on was this certitude in the media that it's racist and wrong and dumb to say it came from the lab when it obviously came from the wet market. Now, that certitude was unearned. That arrogance was unearned. But the reason why the media was so dead set on uh, shutting down the lab theory was because, Donald Trump was one of the original people who floated that, hey, this may have come from a lab. And so it was a backlash effect because, of course, the media hates Trump. And they were saying, not only is that incorrect, that's also racist. Now, I will say there was an implication, generally speaking, when right-wingers made the argument that it came from a lab, that it was this nefarious thing that China wanted to release on purpose as like an act of war. That part of the lab theory is beyond ridiculous. Of course, China didn't want that to happen because a lot of their own population got the virus and a lot of their own population died. Obviously, if it came from the lab, it was a mistake that it got out of the lab. That's true. But the idea that perhaps it came from the lab, the idea that that's absurd, is dead wrong. And now the more evidence we see, the more we realize, hey, it's likely that it did come from the lab. So we had, remember when I covered the story, it was on, um, there was a CNN segment 
where the former head of either the FDA or the CDC, I think the CDC, came out and said, it is my uh, personal opinion, based on the evidence I've seen to this point, that it is very likely the virus came from the lab. This was not a person who's prone to conspiracy theories. This is not a person who's prone to um, hyperbole or anything like that. This is a sober, reasonable, you know, science-minded expert who was on the front lines of this thing, and he came out and said, hey, man, just so everybody knows. So when I looked at that, I was like, oh, okay. Well, because to that point, I thought it definitely came from the wet market, too. When I saw that, I went, oh, so this isn't just right-wing crank stuff that perhaps it came from the lab. And then now, again, the more we learn, the more we realize it very likely did come from the lab. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not going to give you guys any definitive conclusions here. That's not my job. My job is to give you the evidence, give you the data, tell you what the new information is, and you guys make your own mind up, or you remain agnostic. But what I will say is this, because this is my wheelhouse. Remember the reaction from uh, mainstream media and the social media giants where it was floated, hey, we should ban anybody who says it did come from a lab, that that's misinformation, uh, that it's racist, that it's conspiracy theory. So ban anybody who says it came from the lab. Well, now look. The more evidence we get, the more we realize maybe it did come from the lab. It's likely it did come from the lab. So uh, this is a cautionary tale about social media censorship, about having a ministry of truth. Oftentimes, we don't know the facts right away. Oftentimes, it takes time. Oftentimes, we live in a permanent gray area where the world is not black and white, and we never get certain answers to certain questions. How can you have a ministry of truth that is right 100% of the time, And why is it even okay, even if they were right 100% of the time, which they're not, why is it okay for them to decide who gets axed and who doesn't based on their own preferences and their own beliefs and their own biases and their own reading of the situation? Because you guys know this if you watch this show. The elite media types are often wrong and wrong in the most egregious ways. They, They were wrong to be certain that lab leak was stupid. They were wrong on Russiagate. They were wrong on the Iraq war, on Syria on Iran, there was just a Wall Street Journal article that said, Iran's going to get a nuke, and by the way, they're probably going to use it on us in a first strike attack. What? What? So they get to spread misinformation nonstop, and by the way, they get rewarded. That's the way the algorithm works. Certainly how it works on YouTube. Doesn't matter what CNN puts out there. Doesn't matter what tripe Fox News or MSNBC put out there. Whatever they put out there, by definition, is viewed as an authoritative source saying an authoritative thing. Whereas on this show, the track record I have is much better. I write about way more stuff. But since I'm opinionated and I'm an independent outlet, I'm a new media outlet, I'm one guy with a, who's a jackass with a microphone, well, we don't know what he's going to say, so push him to the side, derank him in the algorithm, make sure his stuff doesn't get to new people. Well, now, you know, again, perfect case in point. Perfect case in point. More information comes out. The NIH admits in a report, hey, there was risky virus research going on that we helped fund. No accountability, no consequences, no justice. And we'll continue to go down this path of more censorship, more deplatforming, more top-down authoritarian approaches to dealing with social media and dealing with outsider voices. And they'll never learn the lesson because the point is not to get things right. The point is to control the narrative as much as possible. And here we are. So uh, if you were maybe on the fence in this conversation about, I don't know, misinformation is a really big problem, so obviously we should do something about it, hopefully this changes your mind. That oftentimes the thing that's originally viewed as wild misinformation and conspiracy theory 
actually turns out to either be likely true or probably true. And so you can't just go around censoring things that you personally don't agree with for a variety of reasons. And again, I couldn't come up with a, a more clear example of it if I made it in a lab, no pun intended. Okay. Next. So Ben Shapiro um, became a living meme with a low IQ defense he made of capitalism on his show. So uh, he's releasing these, you know, these uh, YouTube shorts that people are putting out now. It's like, you know, basically a minute or less uh, quick points or whatever, depending on what kind of channel you have. Uh, let me show you what he argues here, and I think you'll get the reference immediately. I just think capitalism is stupid, and it doesn't work. I mean, obviously, look at our country, it doesn't work. Okay, can we pause it there for one second? My favorite is when people who are wearing things that they bought at a store that are much nicer than anything they could get in a communist country are like, capitalism obviously doesn't work. She said while wearing a sweatshirt that she got at a store and sunglasses she got at a store and carrying a purse that she got at a store. Yes, communism is obvious. Just look at our country. It doesn't work. Mm. He became this very famous Matt Boers meme. We should improve society somewhat, yet you participate in society. Curious. I am very intelligent. Hey, Ben, by definition, anybody living in the United States has to partake in the capitalist system. Nobody has a choice to opt out of it. Duh. So what's the argument? Do do, uh, people who are not capitalists, people who are socialists, they have to walk around naked? They have to walk around wearing a barrel? And will you give them points for intellectual consistency uh, if they do some interview and they're dressed like that or they're wearing rags or something? No, then you turn around and make fun of them for being ridiculous and goofy and wearing a barrel. So it's it's a rigged game. No matter what they do, you're going to make fun of them. But this idea, this notion that you shop at a store, so obviously you believe capitalism is correct and right and just. (laughs) It truly is amazing, man. And they would never do the reverse of that. They would never make the opposite point. So, in other words, if somebody in Cuba, let's say, did an interview and said, I think communism is stupid, Ben Shapiro would never release a video saying, Yet you live under communism. Curious. (laughs) Owned. You are a communist because you live in a communist system. He would never do that. He only does it when it's somebody who's on the left and they don't like capitalism and they mention something about it. Now, by the way, the idea that, like, she makes the point, well, the system's not working, certainly not working well. And he mocks that. On what planet can you mock that and think you're some sort of intellectual? I I ask that sincerely. Because, for example, we just got the report that came out from the Institute for Policy Studies uh, last week. We covered it on this show. U.S. billionaire wealth surged by 70% during the pandemic. So billionaires made $2.1 trillion more during the pandemic. That is wildly out of step with the rest of the country. And what they do is they go on to point out in this report uh, that at the same time this was going on, 
89 million Americans lost their job. 89 million Americans. And the $5 trillion in wealth that's now held by the 745 billionaires is more than two-thirds of the $3 trillion in wealth held by the bottom 50%. Billionaires have two-thirds more than the bottom 50% of U.S. households. You look at this system and you think, oh, right on. Oh, it's working just fine. 30 million Americans don't have health care in the middle of a pandemic. It's working just fine. Up to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have health care. It's working fine. Half of working people in this country make $30,000 a year or less. It's working just fine. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. It's working just fine. You live in the U.S., you participate in society, therefore capitalism is correct because you're a hypocrite since you're not living under socialism. I mean, this is like, it's like arguing with a grade schooler. And by the way, I always find it hilarious that Ben Shapiro's entire existence as a political pundit and economic commentator uh, rests on the complete ignorance that social democracy is even a thing. So in his mind, it's like there's capitalism, which is good, right, just, perfect, nice. And then there's socialism and communism and evil lefty stuff. I don't know if he's ever even made an acknowledgement that there's this thing called social democracy, which is a hybrid of elements of capitalism and elements of socialism. And the Scandinavian countries have social democracy, also known as welfare statism. And on, in virtually every measurable category, they're kicking our ass. The, those uh, societies self-report being much happier than we are. They have much better health outcomes. They spend less on health care and everybody's covered. Uh, they have paid vacation time by law which they absolutely love. A lot of these countries have free college. You don't go into massive debt in order to just get a degree to even have a chance at making it. Uh, a lot of those countries have unionization as the default. So almost the entire workforce is in a union. And so they don't even need a minimum wage because workers make more than what a minimum wage would even be. He doesn't understand that there's sort of like this whole other political philosophy, which he ignores on purpose because it would destroy all these stupid points that the United States is the best and um, it's, it's obvious. And since you live under it, you're proof that you believe in it too or whatever. Come on, dude. Come on. The thing that drives me crazy is you're not even trying hard. You're not even trying hard to make arguments for your views. You're just doing stupid gotchas. So anyway, go ahead. If this, if this is your cup of tea, confirming your priors every day with hacky arguments, by all means. Okay. Next. This is a story that I've been really interested in. So this is a story that caught my eye. I've been really interested in it. Um, we just learned that a deadly bacteria was found in an aromatherapy product sold at Walmart. The spray sold under the Better Homes and Gardens brand may be linked to four cases of a rare bacterial illness, and two people have died. So this is really something. Let me give you uh, the specifics. So there's four cases, uh, one in Georgia, one in Kansas, one in Minnesota, and one in Texas. Two of the people, including a child, have died. 
the Consumer Product Safety Commission announced that Walmart, which sold the product, um, is recalling nearly 4,000 bottles. Um, so the product is Better Homes and Gardens Lavender and Chamomile Essential Oil Infused Aromatherapy Room Spray with Gemstone. It just looks like, you know, what you'd see at almost any store in the U.S., some, you know, room spray to make, it, make your room smell less funky. Um, deadly bacteria called Burkholderia pseudomalae, pseudomale, however you say it, um, is what was in it. And they say that this bacteria is most commonly found in water or soil in Southeast Asia or Northern Australia. Uh, it's, a, it's like a tropical uh, deadly bacteria. And on average, there's about a dozen cases in the U.S. each year, but it's usually among people who have traveled overseas to these areas. So what happens is people get this illness. It's called melioidosis, and it's treatable with antibiotics, but, you know, you've got to kind of catch it early on. And since it's, since it's incredibly rare in the U.S., doctors really don't know to look for it, but when they ask people questions and when people say, oh, I travel, I travel to this place or that place, Doctors will know if it was a tropical area, hey, it's possible that it's this, and then they would be able to treat it. But in this instance, the people didn't travel, and so doctors really were kind of clueless as to what these people had. And um, here's the kicker. So what are the symptoms? Respiratory illnesses, um, such as the flu, so it, it like mimics either the flu or even tuberculosis, and the symptoms include a cough, fever, and chest pain. So here's my guess as to what happened. These people went to the hospital, and they thought they had COVID. And the doctors probably thought they had COVID. If I was a doctor, I would have thought they had COVID. Um, and you treat them for that. And the treatment for COVID, look, COVID's a virus. And so you give antiviral treatment for COVID. And we've gone through the list of stuff that you might give, whether it's the, um, the Regeneron stuff, the monoclonal antibodies, um, azithromycin, uh, some steroids, like there, there are ways that we know help back against the virus, but those antiviral treatments are going to do Dickie McGee's act against a bacterial infection, which is what this is. So they were treating them probably for that, and they got worse and worse, and two of them died. So the, the tragedy, I mean, there's a, a number of tragedies embedded in this story, but this was totally treatable if they gave them antibiotics. So somebody comes in, uh, you know, showing these symptoms, they have this illness, you just give them antibiotics, they're going to get better. You ever had strep throat before? I used to get strep throat like every other year as a kid. You just give, give me antibiotics and I'm better, like, pretty quickly. And this was treatable, but the doctors couldn't figure it out because it was just in a product and these people didn't travel and so some of the people died. So there are multiple layers of failure here. I mean, listen, I, you can't blame the doctors too much, they just didn't know. But if you're giving antiviral treatment and, like, otherwise young, healthy people are getting worse and worse and dying, I would imagine that at some point you would think maybe as a Hail Mary, just give them antibiotics and see what happens. Maybe it is some bacterial thing, and we don't know what it is. And then maybe that could have saved some lives. So you can't blame the doctors because they just didn't know. But as I was reading the story, that was one of the things I thought. If I kept giving them antiviral treatment and they kept getting worse, I would have said, maybe it's not COVID. And then you'd throw a Hail Mary. If it's not a virus, maybe it is a bacterial infection. And you give them antibiotics and just see what happens. And, but they didn't do that. But the real issue is what? Guys, the lack of regulation in our economy. You could have some better homes and gardens room spray 
And it's just like, by the way, tropical disease in that, it could kill you. What? Where's the regulation? How do we know now? Like, as I read this, I was like, Jesus Christ. So how do we know it's not in other versions of the same spray? And by the way, they pulled, like, all the different scents of all the sprays because I think they come from the same region where they make it. So, but how do we know it's also not in other, you know, home cleaning products? I don't know. Make one up. Uh, Windex, a 409, whatever. How do we know that they don't have negative? How do we know it's not in Lysol or whatever? We don't. And the fact of the matter is that with our weak regulation in this country, probably only a tiny percentage of all this stuff ever gets checked. And so you have this disastrous consequence of people dying, and it's like we're always playing catch-up. So it's always after the fact, oh, shit, people are dying. Or now pull the product. And so that's what they're doing. But, I mean, this is a good case in point that we need better regulation of this stuff. Um, I guess you could say the only upside is how quickly they were able to act after they finally learned what it was. They did a big investigation, and they found out this was the same thing that all the houses shared as the spray. Um, But then the other thing is, I've always made this argument on this show. Some people say I'm too protectionist for making this argument. But anything that can be made in America should be made in America. Like, I believe in in trade with other nations, but I believe in trading for things that we are totally incapable of creating here. So is it possible that we have the ingredients to make some sort of delicious-smelling room spray here? Probably. And, you know, I think those products, on top of the workers being paid better, those products would probably be safer. And you can increase the regulation as well to make sure the products are safer. So anything that can be manufactured in America should be manufactured in America. We should increase the regulatory state to make sure that products are safe. And it's just so heartbreaking when a random room spray bought at Walmart to make the room smell better just killed two people and made four people sick. I get it, small numbers, but it just shows you, you know, how sort of undeveloped everything still is. You know what I mean? Like, we're still sort of at the whims of the corporations to hopefully get it right. And oftentimes they don't give a fuck if they get it right or not. They just sort of create the product and deal with all the issues later. And they're liable to cut corners in a thousand different ways if it means they make an extra penny. So increase the regulatory state to make sure that these products are safe. By the way, the, all, the entire supplement industry is unregulated. They should regulate the supplement industry. Um, Whatever you can create in America, create in America. And um, it just sucks that these people couldn't get that last minute, you know, a doctor saying, yeah, just give them antibiotics and see what happens. And some people died as a result of it. So uh, my layman's advice is stay away from room sprays at this moment because Lord only knows however many others have it. Um, It's just a heartbreaking situation all around. Okay, next. Oh no, is my computer acting up? It looks like it is. Oh no. Okay. So Wisconsin um, has proposed eliminating a number of child labor laws. Take a look at this. So this is originally reported in Business Insider. 
Wisconsin Senate approves a bill allowing 14-year-olds to work as late as 11 p.m. And supporters say it could help plug the labor shortage. Now, whether or not there actually is a labor shortage is a separate question, and we'll get to it as we move along here. Let me give you some of what they say. Wisconsin Senate approved a bill on Wednesday that would allow 14- and 15-year-olds to work until 11 p.m. on some days, much later than current laws allow. Supporters of the bill say it could help plug the state's labor shortage. Wisconsin currently sticks to federal child labor laws, as they have to, which stipulate that people under the age of 16 can only work between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m. from June 1st to Labor Day, and between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. for the rest of the year. The proposed bill would allow this group to instead work from 6 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. on days before a school day, and 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. when the next day isn't a school day. Um, They continue. They go on to say, uh, it's been sent to the Wisconsin Assembly for approval, and the bill would keep in place federal rules limiting teens to three hours of work on a school day, eight hours on non-school days, and six days of work a week. It wouldn't cover businesses that have annual revenues of more than $500,000 or workers involved in interstate commerce who are instead covered by the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. Hotel and tourism industry lobbyists are, of course, in favor of the bill, but it's opposed by the Wisconsin AFL-CIO and a federation of unions. Now, why would the unions uh, be against it? Well, very simply, this would be child labor undercutting what's supposed to be decent-paying jobs for adult workers. So the Wisconsin Restaurant Association said in June that it supported extending workers' hours for teens to help solve staffing issues. CEO Christine Hilmer said that restaurants across the state had been boosting wages because of their struggle to find staff, noting that some entry-level dishwashers were starting at $15 an hour or higher. Uh, But the fact that the bill wouldn't cover companies with large turnovers or workers who take credit card payments was a potential problem that made the bill very complex from a compliance standpoint. So it's, it's hard to enforce. Wisconsin currently has nearly 3 million people in employment per preliminary data Uh, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics from August, roughly as many as it did before the pandemic hit. But businesses across the state still say they're struggling to find enough workers. So here's the point. You just heard that last fact. That's super important. Three million people were working before the pandemic. Three million people are working now. But the businesses are saying, we don't have enough workers. Let's bring in some child labor. The real reason they want to bring in the child labor is what? They want to get back to lowering wages. They want to get back to lowering wages. They want to, they'd rather pay some teenager significantly less to do the work than pay an adult a living wage. That's what's going on here. And they're obscuring the conversation and misleading you by pretending, no, 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 this is just because there's a labor shortage and it's not our fault. You can't get mad at us because some wages have already been raised. Well, raise them more. Now, if the government wants to do something and get involved here, there's a way the government can get involved. They can say, hey, we're creating a a subsidy fund for businesses to hire at $23 an hour or whatever the number may be. And so you, the restaurant or the small business, you only have to pick up up to the $15 range per hour, and the federal subsidy program will subsidize the rest of the wages up to $23 an hour. I'm just making up numbers here. But you have to hire adult workers, but they're not doing that. The government is not stepping in and saying, let's look out for workers more. The government is stepping in and saying, 
even though the same number of people are working as before the pandemic and after the pandemic, we know you want to get back to lowering wages. So let's bring in some more child labor, huh? Child labor. Nice. Now, this is to be clear, they're just starting to like whittle away at the child labor laws. So there's still a lot of them would still remain. But understand, this is unconstitutional because you have the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says that federal law overrides state law and federal law is clear. Kids this age cannot work those late hours. That's a fact. But they want to do it anyway. They want the state to override the federal government, which wouldn't hold in a federal court. It just wouldn't. Even conservative justices would say, look, even if I agree with you on the the idea and the policy, federal law is clear. So if you want to change this, you have to go through Congress to change it, where they would allow something like this. But, I mean, isn't that something? They would rather bring child labor back, make... 14-year-olds work until 11 o'clock at night. They'd rather do that than raise wages some more for adults. And listen, the inescapable conclusion is that says a lot about capitalism, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. So this is devastating. This is a a big, important story, but it's not going to get much coverage anywhere because all you've heard is the incredibly biased perspectives of the business owners. You get the elite perspective in elite media, and nobody really gives you the flip side of the coin, which is what you're getting here. Okay. Next. Let's go to Rick Wiles. One of my favorite psychopath televangelists is back at it, Rick Wiles. Um, He went on his show and came up with a new COVID vaccine conspiracy theory. Take a look. This is a global coup d'etat by the most evil cabal of people on the planet in the history of mankind. And if it is not stopped in the very near future, they will win. That's what's at stake, control of the world. They're planting, they're putting eggs in people's bodies. If you didn't see yesterday's true news, you need to watch it. It's an egg that hatches into a synthetic parasite and grows inside your body. This is like a sci-fi nightmare. We have a real problem with many of the boomers and the silent generation types. These are people who, in normal human interactions, will have a relatively average level of skepticism when people say stuff. But you put them on a computer, and they look at a Facebook meme, or they get an email from a friend from college, they immediately think it's factual. You know, some asshole who you used to play baseball with in 1964 could send you something calling Obama a a Kenyan Muslim Marxist, and you'd be like, he's a Kenyan Muslim Marxist. Bob told me that. Bob doesn't know Dickie McGee's acts about Dick. And, you know, Rick Wiles here, I have no doubt he read this on some sort of right-wing Facebook group or something, or in a meme, or he heard it from some absolute crank, and he's like, it must be true. They said it. 
Now, the hilarious thing about Rick Wiles is what? He sees a conspiracy in everything, right? That's similar to Alex Jones, except it was a swing and a miss on one of the biggest conspiracies, religion. Because he's a televangelist. He's a fundamentalist evangelical Christian. He thinks a zombie Jewish carpenter died and came back to life and is the son of God. Of the, what, 4,000 plus religions on the planet, he happened to find the correct one. No evidence for any of it, but it was a story, a fairy tale told and passed down, and he got it on his mother's knee, and now he totally believes that. Totally believes that. But everything else is, uh, you know, a massive conspiracy that he knows the truth. I can read between the lines and get to the, to the fact of the matter. So he takes all the religion stuff at face value. Even the bare minimum skepticism would have helped him on that front. But uh, when it comes to everything else in society, he's like, let's get the truth. We've got to read between the lines. We've got to find the reality here. Uh, the vaccine that was taken by 3 billion people and has reduced severe illness, hospitalization, and death by 90%? No. There's an egg that turns into a synthetic parasite in the vaccine. What, are people on the street shedding their skin and becoming the predator? Or, or the, the alien from the movie Alien? Is that what's happening? How do you believe this? And also, if it's an egg, why does it become a synthetic parasite? Wouldn't an egg indicate a normal parasite? So there's a synthetic egg that becomes a synthetic parasite? That seems like a lot of work for, you know, some evil cabal of scientists to go through. And there's not a single, you know, whistleblower among them that you didn't have like 20% of them quit because they have a conscience. And they're like, I don't want to put synthetic, synthetic parasites in people. No, they're all evil. And they're a part of the army of Satan or whatever nonsense he would argue. Look how certain he is of this. Don't get the vaccine because there will be an egg that turns into a synthetic parasite in your body. Mm. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. I mean, I guess the upside is I don't know how many people watch this and believe it, but I can't imagine it's a lot. I have to imagine it's a very small number of people, you know. I mean, there's a lot of borderline people out there, but what kind of audience is Rick Wiles attracting? Can't be many. And if it is a lot, then I have no answers for you. (laughs) I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I think he's a marginal voice. I think he has a tiny audience, but you just hope that he's not doing any real-world damage, you know? Pat Robertson had a sizable audience, um, and when he would do stuff like pray away people's illnesses, that would piss me off because then somebody watching who really believes in Pat Robertson might say, I'm not going to go to the doctor even though I was going to because Pat said he just healed me. That's real-world harm. Is this leading to real-world harm? I think all the people who are watching Rick Wiles, whatever tiny number it is, they weren't going to get vaccinated anyway. So I don't know if it's leading to any more real-world harm. So it's just fodder for us to make fun of. Um, But by the way, Rick Wiles also had COVID. He was in the hospital with it for a while. And he's still out there doing these nonsense arguments. It's really something, isn't it? I mean, I guess uh, I was distraught when Pat Robertson retired, and now he's out of the national conversation, so I can't make fun of him anymore. At least we still have our Rick Wiles. Okay, next. Next, next, next. 
So police are looking to prosecute Kirsten Cinema's bathroom protesters. This pissed me off. Take a look. From Talking Points Memo, the Arizona State University Police Department has asked the Maricopa County Attorney's Office to prosecute the immigration activists who filmed themselves confronting Senator Kirsten Cinema at the school over her stonewalling of the sweeping reconciliation package and following her into a bathroom as they did so several weeks ago. ASU Police Spokesperson Adam Wolf alleged in an interview with the Arizona Republic that the four protesters had committed misdemeanors of disorderly conduct and disrupting an educational institution. The ASU police finished its investigation into the incident uh, this past week, Wolf told the Arizona Mirror. Uh, The Arizona Republic and the Arizona Mirror noted that the police aren't recommending criminal charges based on the state's ban on recording a person in the bathroom. The protesters did not film cinema inside the stall. So in other words, if they did film her inside the stall, that would be against the law because you can't film somebody who's in the bathroom and be that close to it and show that much of it. But if they walk in and the stall's blocking them out, they say that's not enough to go after them. But again, they did say that they're going after them for disorderly conduct and disrupting an, ex- disrupting an educational institution. So this gets under my skin a lot for a very simple reason. Look at the two-tier justice system. Look at the power disparity. So you have Kirsten Cinema took $920,000 from Big Pharma, 920000 She used to be for lowering drug prices, and now she flipped to being against lowering drug prices. She wants that provision stripped from the reconciliation package. Now, mainstream media won't tell you this, but the reason is because she's corrupt and she took a legalized bribe from Big Pharma. They said, what if we give you a whole bunch of money, would you flip your position? And she was like, yes. So they gave her that money and she flipped her position. In this country, because we hide behind the language of this is just campaign finance, that's perfectly legal. It's perfectly legal. What do you mean she's just raising money for her next campaign? There's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing wrong with that. This is the way the system works. This is the way it functions. You raise from various donors. Those donors include corporate PACs. Those donors include Big Pharma, the military industrial complex, Wall Street, This is viewed as par for the course in the United States of America. So she does something which is morally and ethically repugnant and terrible and will no doubt lead to the deaths of people because people die in this country all the time because they ration their insulin. That's just one example. I'm sure people die because they're cutting up other pills of theirs. So people will die because they can't afford their drugs because Kirsten Sinema and a bunch of other senators are bought by Big Pharma. That is incredible corruption that in any reasonable society, that would be punished as severely as murder. That would be a felony in any reasonable country. She's totally going to get away with that. Totally going to get away with it. But somebody protests her and says, hey, vote for the package because it's a good package. And they follow her into the bathroom to say, this is how it affects my life. This is why it's important. And now they're going to get charged with disorderly conduct, among other things. Look at the disparity. So if you're, if you're one of the peasants, if you're one of the regular people, you can't even speak up. You can't even protest. You can't get a meeting with her, by the way, unless you're a lobbyist and you have over $5,000 to give her. So they can't get in touch with her. They can't get a phone call with her. They can't get a meeting with her. So they find her and protest her, tell her their concerns, and now there's charges recommended against them for that. So they do something which is not unethical. In fact, I'd argue it's ethical. It's not immoral. I'd argue it's moral. And there's going to be consequences for them. 
But for the disgustingly corrupt senator, no consequences at all. None. And this is what leads to my frustration, and I'm sure this is what leads to a lot of your guys' frustration as well, is that this is a two-tier justice system. There's no doubt about it. This is a rigged system, biased in favor of the well-off and the elites. And shame on everybody who was splitting hairs and, and are arguing that this temporary breach of decorum and civility is worthy of condemnation, as opposed to talking about the real elephant in the room, which is the disgusting corruption, which has rotted our system from the inside out, which is the heart of every single political problem in this country, is that big money runs the show, billionaires run the show, corporations run the show. That's the real scandal, and it was ignored for a conversation about a breach of decorum for 15 seconds. Shame on everybody who fed into that narrative. It's pathetic. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. There's a poll that was conducted in the spring which came across my radar about the healthcare system in the U.S. and the healthcare systems respectively around the world. And man, is this something. So the U.S. ranks dead last in trust of our healthcare system. Look at this. So you can see there, 76% of Americans say either we need major changes to our healthcare system or it needs to be completely reformed. 76%. The only one who's in the same ballpark is Greece. 77% say it either needs major changes or needs to be completely reformed. And by the way, in Greece, there's more that say it needs major changes and fewer who say it needs to be completely reformed. You could argue they're even below us because more of our people say we need to completely reform our system. And then you look at that, compare that to the rest of the developed world. I mean, look, compare that to Canada. Compare that to Canada. What is it? 57% say it doesn't need to be changed or it needs minor changes. That number in the U.S. is just 24%. So in other words, people in the U.S. are well aware this is our number one issue. The pandemic highlighted this issue. It exacerbated the problems that already existed. And remember, even before the pandemic, up to 45,000 people died every year, according to a Harvard study from 2009, because they don't have basic health care. 45,000 deaths every year. Now, I'm told all the time about the Canadian waiting lines for health care. What they don't tell you is we have waiting lines in this country, and the waiting line is littered with up to 45,000 dead bodies every single year. Now, in Canada, are there sometimes some wait lines? Yes. It's for elective procedures. In other words, procedures that you can wait for. They prioritize there based on needs. Hey, who needs the care? You're going to get it right now. Whereas in the U.S., we prioritize based on the size of your wallet. We do a wallet biopsy. Do a class biopsy in this country. Which, of course, also then has racial implications as well. It's a disproportionate number of people of color are not as well off. So, I mean, it couldn't be any more clear that our healthcare system is broken. We pay more than any other country in the world per capita, and we have way worse outcomes. There was that World Health Organization study, which ranked us number 37 in the world, but that's an old study from around the year 2000. But even the recent studies from the Commonwealth Fund, we were ranked 11th out of the 11 countries studied with our healthcare system. In every measurable way, we're worse. We have a rapacious, for-profit, price-gouging system 
The system is run by the health insurance companies, which are nothing but a middleman mafia. They just take their cut and tell you that your care is going to be denied for all sorts of bullshit reasons. They tell you you can't go to this doctor because it's out of network. Under Medicare for All system, you can pick your doctor. And there is no mafia middleman. The single payer is the government. So you get sick, you get help, and it's paid for with your tax dollars. In this country, we just throw all our money at the military. That's what we do. We colossal Pentagon budgets, defense budgets every year, while our, our basic needs get ignored. And by the way, a Medicare for All system would save trillions of dollars. We've covered the studies on that ad nauseum, ad infinitum. So people know, man, and it's just crazy that even in the midst of a pandemic, even though the public is overwhelmingly on the side of fixing this, you can't, you couldn't move Biden. Forget Medicare for all. He said he'd veto Medicare for all. You couldn't even get him to do a public option. He backed off this public option, which is his campaign pledge. The best thing we did with our healthcare system, arguably ever, is the free vaccine rollout program for COVID-19. We're now like, what, 70% of the country or 70% of adults or something like that are vaccinated? We got a little taste of socialism, and it was awesome. And what we need to do is expand that and broaden it. And that's why in the, in the package, the reconciliation package, they're talking about hopefully lowering that Medicare age. You hope that doesn't get axed in these terrible negotiations going on. Um, but that would be a great start. That would be a great start. But really, we needed Medicare for all yesterday. And by the way, the propaganda is not working anymore. When people say, oh, we're the best healthcare system in the world, my ass cheeks we are. Americans in a poll are saying, actually, we think we're more critical of ours than anybody else in the world is critical of theirs. So we have the least trust in our healthcare system. The propaganda doesn't work anymore because people are experiencing it firsthand. How many people have gotten a medical bill that they can't pay? Medical bills are the top cause of bankruptcy in the United States of America. Medical bills or or medical bankruptcies aren't a thing in other developed countries. You're getting screwed, man. And it looks like Americans have figured that out. So now it's time to act on it. All right, guys. We're Dunsies. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.